Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. It means a lot to us that you've decided to make this service a part of your spiritual rhythm today. Whether you're live in the room with us, watching online, or at some point in the future. If you are just visiting, this is the kind of place that anyone can call home. If you are curious about church, this is a safe place to check out the claims of Jesus. It's a great place to have doubts and questions about spirituality. If you followed Christ your whole life, this is the kind of place that cares about your spiritual journey. We are committed to helping you grow. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your church home, or if you just have questions, please let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions in the resources section of our website. And now, let's join our service. Uh, Our daughter, Lexi, uh, posted on Facebook last week asking for advice in dealing with a three-nager. Said three-nager, our granddaughter, Avery, uh, apparently isn't always the perfect little three-year-old for her mommy like she is for Pops and Grammy. (laughs) Who'd have thunk? Well, that got me to uh, thinking about life through the eyes of a toddler and the phrase, the struggle is real, came to mind. Uh, The struggle is real is an ironic idiom that someone uses when they encounter some sort of difficulty, but they're dealing with it. Uh, For adults, we might also use the phrase first world problems, but when you are a toddler, they aren't first world problems as much as inexplicable troubles. Uh, The Huff Post published some hilarious tweets illustrating the struggle is real through the tantrums of toddlers, as tweeted by their parents. James tweets, in case you were on the fence about having kids, my three-year-old threw a temper tantrum because her tongue is pink. (laughs) This dad tweets that tonight's bathtub tantrum was brought to you by butter, because you can play with lots of things in the bath, but not butter. (laughs) Marcy G. tweets, my toddler was having a massive tantrum until she found a grape on the floor. She ate it and forgot why she was crying. She was crying because she doesn't like grapes. (laughs) Mummin Bits tweets, if your two-year-old asks for the red cup, but you're sure she wants the pink, and you check with her ten times, and she says definitely red, so you give her red, and then she has a meltdown because she wants pink, how much wine can you drink before midday? <laughs> that mom, though, tweets, my daughter threw a tantrum because she felt it was too early to be spoken to, and it really is a miracle that we create little versions of ourselves. <laughs> Which leaves me agreeing with this parents, a parent, a group of toddlers is called a tantrum. <laughs> Which reminds me, we need some volunteers in the toddler class. <laughs> See Anna if you are interested. None of our Dayspring toddlers ever throw tantrums, so you are safe. <laughs> uh, we're in a series we're calling How to Get Through What You're Going Through. Life is a struggle. It doesn't always go the way we want it to go. We experience loss and disappointment when we face hard things, and we all face hard things. So we're looking at the six stages of getting through whatever it is you're going through. We started with shock, when your world collapses. That's the first stage. Then sorrow, uh, working your way through the emotions of loss. Uh, Today, we're going to look at struggle, when life doesn't make sense at all. And then in the next few weeks, we'll look at surrender, sanctification, and service. Uh, These last three stages are the ones where we see God redeeming our grief and turning it into something beautiful. Uh, Honestly, we'd all prefer to just land there. They represent the end of the valley of shadows, 
And since no one likes to journey through valleys, we just try to jump to the end and go over or around the valley. But taking a healthy journey means entering into our grief, entering into the valley so that we can come out the other side victorious, stronger, able to leap tall buildings with a single bound. So we struggle. We struggle through the valley as we reach for the other side. Everybody struggles in life. We know that. Life can be hard. Sometimes it's hard just because we don't navigate life very well, and we cause our own hardship. Sometimes hardship is foisted on us by others or by things beyond our control, like global pandemics. However it comes, everybody struggles in life. We struggle because everything is broken in this world. It wasn't always like that. There was a time before the struggle, a blip on the timeline of creation. And then Adam and Eve sinned. And a consequence of that sin was struggle. God put it this way in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And to the man, that's to Adam, to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. All your life, you will struggle. Now, you didn't need me to read that verse for you to know this truth. Uh, We know it instinctively. You know struggle. You've struggled. Some of you are struggling, and we'll all struggle in the future. And we all struggle in three ways. Uh, We struggle with other people. We struggle with ourselves, and we struggle with God. At first, we struggle with other people. We struggle with other people. Every relationship is broken by sin. Nothing works perfectly. We are competitive. We have conflict. We're not really as good of communicators as we'd like to think we are, so we have misunderstandings. We get disappointed by people. They disappoint us. They don't meet our expectations. We don't meet theirs. The Bible is filled with people who struggled, but one of the great strugglers of old is Jacob. Jacob's entire life was a struggle. He struggled with his brother when he stole Esau's birthright and blessing. He struggled with his wives. If you ever think, you know, I'd like to have two wives or two husbands, I have some advice. First, don't say it out loud. We call that stupidity. (laughs) Just keep it to yourself. But then read Genesis chapter 30. Jacob is prime example number one of why polygamy is a bad idea. Uh, By the way, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that it's approved by God. Uh, People say polygamy's in the Bible, slavery's in the Bible, and for years people missed why they are in the Bible as they tried to justify sin. Rape and murder are in the Bible too. Uh, The Bible is a book of truth. It tells the truth about people, even the sins of people. Just because it tells the truth about something doesn't, uh, that, just because it tells the truth about something that was part of someone's life doesn't mean that God condones it. He opposed multiple wives from the beginning. God said we should have one spouse for life. So Jacob struggles with his wives. He struggles with his in-laws. They were jealous. They cheated each other. They struggled with his 12 sons. He put the, they put the dis in dysfunction. Mom liked one kid. Dad liked another. The rest just existed like flies on the wall. They all struggled with other people, just like us. We struggle with other people. And secondly, we struggle with ourselves. In fact, our biggest battle in life is the battle within. It really isn't with other people. The bigger battle is inside you. Uh, You struggle with your fears. You struggle with your flaws. You struggle with temptations, with insecurities, guilt, regret. You struggle with your identity. We struggle with resentment, compulsions, weaknesses, sins, and addictions. It doesn't really matter who you are, how mature you are, the greatest battle in life is the battle within. 
the Apostle Paul, who gave us about half of the New Testament, and who was about as righteous as they come, once he came to Jesus and stopped trying to eradicate the church, even he struggles, struggled. In Romans 7, he writes this about his struggles. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing it. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Now, I'm sure, I know you're like me, so I'm sure that you find these verses both encouraging and discouraging. Encouraging because if even the Apostle Paul struggled all his life, as righteous as he was, then I, who am not near as righteous as him, can't expect to do any different. Which is the discouraging part. I'd rather just finally reach the place where I rise above the struggle. It'd make life much easier and less complicated. I don't like wanting to do things I shouldn't do. I don't like not wanting to do the things I should do. I'd rather just rise above the struggle. Jacob struggled with his insecurities. He, he was a manipulator of other people. He struggled with his conscience. So like Jacob, we struggle with other people and we struggle with ourselves. But these struggles really pale in comparison to the greatest struggle in our life. And it's the struggle we have with God. In fact, our real struggle is with God. We struggle with God all the time, whether we realize it or not. In fact, most of the struggles we have with other people and most of the struggles we have with ourselves are actually rooted in our struggle with God. Why do we struggle with God? That's a great question. And there are really two reasons. One, we doubt his wisdom. We doubt his wisdom, which leads us to the second reason. We doubt his wisdom, therefore we want to be in control. Whenever you doubt God's wisdom, you want to be God. Because you think you know better than God. You think you know what will make you happy more than God does. You think you know better, so you do what you want. You know, you can not doubt someone's love and still doubt their wisdom. We've all been teenagers. Think back a few years. You knew your parents loved you, but you doubted their wisdom. They didn't really understand life as well as you did. That's what we're like with God. We know he loves us, but he doesn't understand life as well as we do. It sounds absurd to say it with my outside voice. And I'm hoping that I don't get struck with lightning as I speak. None of us would ever admit this, but we live like it. We doubt his wisdom all the time. Why did he let this happen? Why did he say no to this? Why isn't he answering the, this prayer the way I want? That's doubting God's wisdom. Jacob, better than most people, demonstrates what life looks like when you struggle with God. But really, the only difference between him and us is that his struggle has been put on display for all people to see. Most of our struggle is private. The prophet Hosea summarized Jacob's life like this in Hosea chapter 12, verse 3. He writes, Even in the womb, Jacob struggled with his brother. When he became a man, he even fought with God. His whole life was a struggle. In fact, it started before he was born. 
Interestingly enough, I got an email on Friday from a science place that I, I'm a little bit of a science geek, um, and it showed a video of twins struggling, fighting in the womb. How cool is it that science actually supports something that God's Word said thousands of years ago? Uh, Jacob's story begins in Genesis chapter 25. Though it wasn't for lack of trying, Isaac and Rebekah had been unable to get pregnant. Isaac pleaded with God, and God answered. Rebekah became pregnant with twins, and in the womb, Genesis 25-22 tells us that the two brothers struggled. What a dream pregnancy for Rebekah. <laughs> and then, as a man, years later, Jacob actually wrestled with God, the only person ever to take down God. That's one WWF wrestling match I'd be interested in watching. <laughs> This part of his story comes a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 32. It says this. When the man, oh, no, I went too far. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servant wives and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions this left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. Now, let's back up and get some context. Just over 20 years before this, Jacob cheated his brother Esau out of his birthright and the blessing from his family, his twin brother, mind you. Esau was the firstborn and should have received the normal firstborn inheritance of two times everyone else's. Thanks to some conniving on Jacob's part and stupidity on Esau's part, Jacob was in line to get the firstborn inheritance. And then the straw that broke the camel's back was Jacob's stealing of their father's blessing. With the help of Rebekah, by the way, mom favored Jacob, dad favored Esau. I told you, they were dysfunctional. At that time, the parental blessing included words of encouragement details of the inheritance, and prophetic words about the future. Receiving a blessing from one's father was considered a high honor. Losing a blessing was the equivalent of receiving a curse. So Jacob stole Esau's blessing, which made Esau mad, mad enough to kill. So Jacob fled to another part of the country and married his uncle's daughters, Leah and Rachel. He lived there for around two decades before God tells him to return home, which is a scary prospect when you know that you could be headed into the proverbial lion's den, although this was years and years and years before the lion's den that made that phrase famous. While he left home with the clothes on his back, he is returning home with an entourage. Besides his two wives, he's added two servant wives, he has a passel of kids, servants, sheep, cattle. By this point, he is very wealthy. And on the way, he sends some gifts ahead to grease the wheels with his brother. But then finds out that his brother is headed his direction with an army of 400 men. In Jacob's mind, there is only one reason his brother would be coming with an army of 400. This won't be a happy reunion. He knows that God has told him to go home, but he's scared to death. He knows that his brother has said that he wants to kill him because Jacob stole from him. So when they hit the Jabbok River, he sends his family and all his stuff on ahead, and he stays behind. He figures that his brother's beef is with him, not his kids, so they'll be safe regardless of what happens the next day, which leaves him alone in the camp where he wrestles God. Now, we got the framework for this series from Rick Warren, pastor at Saddleback Church in California, so I can't take credit for this next part at all. But he points out that in Hebrew, the whole scene is actually a pun. In the original language, the word for Jacob is yebok, yebok. And the word for wrestling is yebek, yebek. And the word for Jabbok River is Yabok. So what we've got here is Yabok, Yabek, got it, Yabok. 
Jacob wrestles God at the Jabbok River. Some things just get lost in translation. Jacob has been running from God his entire life. Some of you have too. You've been running from God your entire life. But God meets Jacob at the Jabbok River and says, you're not going to run anymore. We're going to settle this once and for all. It's time to get down and get dirty as we wrestle it out. The Bible says that that night, while Jacob is alone at the Jabbok River, he meets a man. The man is an angel of God. He's clearly representing God. So God shows up and starts wrestling Jacob. As a side note, it kind of makes me wonder how this match started. Did God just surprise him with a takedown? Or did he walk up to Jacob and say, hey, Jacob, let's wrestle? Or did they have a conversation that didn't go well? Clearly because of Jacob, not God. And Jacob said, if you want me to do this, you're going to have to pin me to the ground. We don't know. We just know they wrestled and wrestled and wrestled until Genesis chapter 32, verse 25, says, When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Notice that it says that the man saw he wasn't winning his struggle. Have you ever been in a no-win struggle? Some of you are in a no-win struggle right now. Some things in life just aren't going to change. You're going to have those problems the rest of your life. You have to manage them because they aren't going to go away. They might be health problems, maybe a disability, relationship problems. They are lifetime problems because they'll be with you for a lifetime. As Andy Stanley would say, they've become tensions to be managed, not problems to be solved. They are no win. Well, the man saw that he was in a no-win situation. He wasn't winning the struggle, and Jacob wasn't going to give up, which is really interesting. Did Jacob know who he was wrestling? I mean, clearly, if God was wrestling Jacob, he could have overcome Jacob instantly. I mean, a wrestling match with me would be over before it started. But in this wrestling match with Jacob, it's a tie. So what's going on here? If God could have overwhelmed Jacob, why did he let this struggle go on? Don't miss this next point. This is important. Why did God continue to struggle with Jacob when he didn't have to. Because God loves it when you wrestle with him. God loves it. Some of you are in a struggle with God right now. God loves it when you struggle with him. Why? <laughs> because the opposite of struggling with God is walking away from God. Running away, avoiding, saying, forget you, God. God would rather have you fight with him then flee from him. He'd much rather hear, that's not fair, or God, I don't like that, it's not right, than to have you give up. Because wrestling is a face-to-face -face encounter. It's an intimate sport. Uh, one of my dads was a wrestler, and as an adult, a wrestling coach. Of course, he would have loved it if I um, had followed in his footsteps. But I didn't want to be that close to a sweaty guy wearing a stupid wrestling singlet. <laughs> there are some things you can't ever unsee. So I sang instead. <laughs> wrestling is about control. The whole goal of wrestling is to get down and dirty with a guy until he gives up. You're locked in the issue about as intimately as you can get. God says, I like that. I like it when you wrestle with me because at least I've got your attention. So he's letting Jacob struggle with him, even though he could have ended it instantly. He's letting Jacob think he's winning, but Jacob's not letting go until he gets a blessing. There's that blessing thing again. Hmm. 
So this man asks Jacob a, a really strange question when you think about it. Verse 27, what is your name? The man asked. You didn't think they've gotten that part out before they started wrestling. <laughs> Ladies, you know men, we just dive in and ask questions later. What is your name? He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel, because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Now, one of the things we know about God is that when he asks you a question, he already knows the answer. He wants you to know the answer. God knew Jacob's name. He never missed a day of Jacob's life. He knew Jacob better than Jacob knew himself. He created Jacob. But he wants Jacob to admit who he is. In those days, names meant something. You were named for your character. It was more than just a label. It identified you. Jacob literally means deceiver. It means supplanter. It means manipulator. Jacob had spent his whole life true to character, true to his name. He was a master manipulator, trying to get things to go his way, trying to control the narrative, to control everything, to control his brother, to control his family, his uncle slash father-in-law. When God says to Jacob, what's your name? What he's really asking is, Jacob, do you realize that you are the problem? The, the reason there is a struggle is because of you. You keep trying to control everyone and everything, but all you're really doing is making a mess of your life despite your best efforts. Your best efforts have only brought on more and more struggle. Jacob owns up to it. My name is Deceiver. My name is Manipulator. Now think about this for a minute. What if every one of us, what if our name was our primary sin? What would your name be? Hello, what's your name? Greedy. Oh really, well, I'm lustful. What's your name? Gossip. And what's your name? Insecure manipulator. That would be Jacob. Can you imagine if you had to be named for your number one sin everywhere you went in life? Hi, what's your name? Lazy. That's what's going on here. He's asking Jacob to admit his greatest fault. But despite his greatest fault, the thing I like about Jacob is his willingness to struggle. He doesn't run away from God. He doesn't just walk away. He hangs in there. He knows what he wants. I want blessing. I'm not letting go until you bless me, God. Have you ever said that to God? God, I'm going to struggle with you until you bless me. He even admits that he's the problem. I'm Jacob. I'm a manipulator and a deceiver. I'm a control freak trying to control everything and everyone in my world, and all that I've accomplished has created conflict. Conflict with my parents, my brother, my friends, wives, sons, daughters, everyone. And then something extraordinary happens. God says, your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. You have won. Circle that or highlight it in your Bible. This is incredible. We're going to come back to how to win an argument with God. But let this sink in. You've struggled with God and won. God's never said that about anyone else. And there are a couple of reasons we should take note. He says, your name will be Israel. Most of us know the significance of this man. He is the man the nation of Israel is named after. He's given a new identity. The name Israel has two meanings. One is struggles with God. And if you know the history of Israel, that pretty much sums up their whole history. Struggles with God. 
The other meaning is prince with God. You're now a prince with God. You used to be a manipulator, but now you're a prince. Jacob's whole struggle with God changed his identity. He's not the same man anymore. The same thing happens with us. Because when God wants to do his deepest work in your life, it is in your identity. When he can change the way you see yourself, it changes you. Anything you want to change in life starts with a change in perspective. But until God changes the way you see yourself, not much is going to happen. You're going to struggle the rest of your life. Finish this sentence in your head. It's just like me to be... It's just like me to be... What? How would you end that sentence? It's just like me to be late. It's just like me to be insecure. It's just like me to get angry. It's just like me to feel less than everyone else. It's just like me to run off at the mouth. I, the way you answer that question gives you insight into how you see yourself, how you see your identity. If you're going to get through your struggle with God, God's going to have to change your identity from whatever your sin is to prince or princess of God. From whatever you think your failure is to prince or princess of God. From your weakness to royalty. So God blessed him there. And in verse 30, Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. Since you're going to struggle in your life, all your life, you need this story as much as Jacob did. If you're going to struggle, you might as well get a win out of it. You might as well experience victory. Since your struggle with other people and with yourself are at their core a reflection of your deepest level struggle of, uh, that you have with God, you need to know how to wrestle with God and win. How to wrestle with God and come out blessed. Every story in the Bible has been given to us to understand how to have a better relationship with God, without exception. So how do you go through struggles in life, particularly with God? When I am angry at God, when I'm mad at God, when I'm disappointed with God, when I think God has let me down, when I've prayed and haven't gotten an answer. Last week, we talked about a specific kind of prayer called a lament. Most people don't know how to lament. A lament is a passionate complaint to God. God doesn't want you to just praise him. He doesn't want just the good parts of you. He can handle the bad parts too. He wants you to lament when life is a struggle. He wants you to complain to him. It's an act of worship to complain to God. It's an act of rebellion when you complain about God, but complain to him all you want. So we tiptoed into lament last week. The Bible is full of laments. The entire book of Lamentations is a lament. It's basically Jeremiah complaining to God about God's decisions and why life sucks. You find the same complaining themes scattered throughout the Psalms. They aren't just praise and thanksgiving. There's a lot of complaining in there too. Uh, up to 65 of the Psalms are laments. And when you study those laments, you begin to see a pattern emerge. In every one of them, this is the, the pattern that you can use to successfully wrestle with God argue with God, complain to God, shout at God, and win. Uh, this is a form of prayer. And thanks to Rick Warren, we're going to make it easy to remember. It's a simple acrostic, CARE, C-A-R-E. C stands for complain. So if you don't like what's going on in your life, you want to complain about it. In a lament, that's the first thing you do. Complain. In many of the Bibles, in the laments in the Bible, this comes in the form of a question, kind of like the answers on Jeopardy. God, why are you allowing this? God, why don't you do something? God, when are you going to give an answer to this prayer? 
How long is this going to take? Where are you? What in the world are you doing while my world is falling apart? Uh, the more specific your question to your struggle, the better. So that's the first thing. Complain. The A in care stands for appeal. The second thing you do is appeal to God's nature. We'll get to that in a minute. Appeal to God's character, uh, who he is, the attributes of God. The R stands for remind. Remind God. I complain, I appeal, I remind God of his promises. I remind God of his truth. I remind God of what he said. I remind God of his reputation. And then I, E, express trust in God's wisdom and the things I don't understand. I express trust. Regardless of who is writing the lament in the Bible, when they are lamenting to God, they follow this pattern. All through Scripture, complain, appeal, remind, express. So here's how it works. When life is a struggle and I don't like it, when my prayers aren't being answered the way I want them to be, I, number one, tell God what I think is unfair or painful. This is the start of the lament. Sometimes it almost feels like a, a demand. Do something, God. Now, let me give you some examples. Here in, uh, here's Job chapter 13, verses 4 to 25. This is a longer passage, but Job had a lot to complain about. He writes, why should I put myself in mortal danger and take my life into my own hands? God might kill me, but I have no other hope. I am going to argue my case with him, but this is what will save me. I am not godless. If I were, I could not stand before him. Listen closely to what I'm about to say. Hear me out. I have prepared my case. I will be proven innocent. Who can argue with me over this? And if you prove me wrong, I will remain silent and die. Oh God, grant me these two things, and then I will be able to face you. Remove your heavy hand from me, and don't terrify me with your awesome presence. Now summon me, and I will answer. Or let me speak to you, and you reply. Tell me, what have I done wrong? Show me my rebellion and my sin. Why do you turn away from me? Why do you treat me as your enemy? Would you terrify a leaf blown by the wind? Would you chase dry straw? Most of us don't think we can talk to God that way, but we can. It's in the Bible. It's a lament. By the way, I've read it with the attitude that I think Job had. He was exasperated and he wanted answers. Uh, here's one from David. Psalm 13, 1 to 5. O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying, we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. You see the transition at the end? Complain, appeal, remind, express, trust. Now, I could go on, but you get the picture. I've included a couple of more in the message notes, which you'll find on our website if you're not here in the room. The first thing you do is tell God what you think is unfair or painful with any attitude. He's not like your earthly parents who you had to carefully measure your words with. <laughs> you can lament out of anger, out of frustration, out of exhaustion, out of disappointment, fear, whatever. He can take it. But here's the key. You have to complain in faith. You do it in faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So complain, believing that he is going to hear you, that he is going to listen, that he cares. Even in your complaints, you do it in faith. God, I know you can accept this because you are a big God with big shoulders. In Psalm 55, David says, Morning, noon, and night, I cry out in my distress. 
and the Lord hears my voice. I'm complaining morning, noon, and night, and I know that he hears my voice. That's complaining in faith. The second thing you want to do if you want to struggle with God and win, I appeal to God's nature. This is the A in care, appeal to God's nature. Uh, When you read the Psalms of Lament, you see the author complaining and saying at the same time things like, God, I know you are a good God. God, I know you are a loving God. God, I know you are kind. I know you are fair. I don't like this situation, but you see the big picture. This isn't good for me, but you are powerful, so then help me. He appeals to God, to God's nature. God loves it when you do this, which, by the way, it's for you, not for him. He doesn't need to be reminded. You do. But when you say things like, God, you know I am out of work, and you've promised to meet all of my needs. God, you know I can't have a baby, and all I want is a baby, and I know you are sovereign over all, and you care about me. God, I don't feel like this is fair, and I know you are a fair and just God. I know you see everything in my life. I know you are all-powerful. You see this all through Scripture. This is how Abraham argued with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. God, you are a fair God. Moses complained and appealed to God's nature. David complained and appealed to God's nature. These guys are basically saying that nothing is right in their world. Today we might say that nothing is working in my family. The world is a mess. My job is a mess. My life is a mess. And when I read about you in the Bible, I know that you are good. You are loving and powerful, so help me with this. What's happening here isn't good. It doesn't seem like you would approve of this because it's out of your character. So act in your character. Appeal to God's nature. And then the third thing you want to do if you want to win the struggle, by the way, you don't have to do this if you want to just keep on struggling. (laughs) But number three, I remind God of what he said. I remind him of his promises, of what he's said in his word. Several times in Jeremiah, Jeremiah did this with God. You've promised this and that and this, and if you don't do it, you're going to look bad. He's appealing to God's reputation. You actually see this quite a bit in laments. God, if you don't help us with this, it won't look good for you. They'll start saying that God is no God at all. He doesn't help his people. Well, Jacob actually did this exact thing. Just before this epic wrestling match, he prayed in verse 9, O God of my grandfather Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, you told me, you told me, return to your own land and to your relatives, and you promised me, I will treat you kindly. I am not worthy of all of the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown me, your servant. When I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I owned nothing except a walking stick. Now my household fills two large camps. Oh Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I am afraid he is coming to attack me along with my wives and children. But you promised me I will surely treat you kindly and I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore. Too many to count. Jacob reminded God of what he said, which again isn't really for God's benefit. It's for ours. We forget and need to be reminded. And then the fourth thing, I express my total trust in God. That's how David ends almost every psalm. No matter how much he's complained, he ends with still, I will trust you. I don't like this. That's not going the way I think it should but I will trust you. That's how you end the prayer. God, I trust your goodness. God, I trust your wisdom. I trust your plan even when I don't understand. Job also did this. You know the story. Job lost everything, and yet Job 13, 15 says, even though God slay me, yet I will trust him. 
I don't have it all figured out. My brain couldn't possibly comprehend, but I will trust God anyway. I don't have to know why, because I know God. Even if cancer takes my life, even if I lose my house, even if I never have someone to love again, I trust God. The way you win a fight with God is through surrender. This is counterintuitive to how we think about fighting. We think that to win, someone has to lose. And uh, in order for me to win, you have to lose. Or in this case, God has to lose. But the way God works, we only win when we surrender. I surrender all my unanswered questions. I surrender my desires for a different outcome. I surrender my anger, my hurt, my pain, my need for control. And in return, I win blessing. I sense his presence. I feel his love. And I know he cares. He gives me comfort. We're going to talk more about surrender next week. But the only way you're going to win in the struggles of life is if you give up control. The most dangerous delusion you could have is the illusion that you are in control. You're not. You're not in control of your marriage. You're not in control of your kids. You're not in control of your schedule, of your health, the economy, or your finances. The greatest things in your life are out of your control. So you give it up to the one who is in control. You surrender. This part of Jacob's story ends like this. Verse 31. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Now remember earlier in the story, God reached over and touched Jacob's hip and pulled it out of its socket. There is significance to that. Your hip, the thigh muscle, is the strongest muscle in your body. It's the biggest and strongest muscle. God is going to touch you at the place of your greatest strength. And you're going to limp the rest of your life as a reminder that you depend on him, not on your own strength. Jacob had a history of running. He ran from responsibility. He ran from the messes he made. He ran from the struggles he created. But he wouldn't run anymore. You see, after you've wrestled with God and won, he blesses you. But he also gives you a reminder to depend on him the rest of your life. You're going to limp the rest of your life. And in that, we find the greatest blessing. A life of dependence through surrender. All of God's giants walk with a limp. Let's pray. Father, as we come to prayer right now, it's likely that there are people here in the room, people who are watching online, who have been running from you for their entire lives, for a very long time. There are people watching or here in the room who haven't even begun to figure out how to wrestle with you because they don't have a relationship with you at all. And in these moments, if that describes you, it's okay to say I'm done. I will run no more. The process of entering into a relationship with Jesus is really pretty easy. You admit that the, your best efforts in life have gotten you this far, and, and you've made a mess of your life. Your life is filled with sin and hurt and pain, and you give it all to Jesus and receive the truth that he came for you, that he died and rose again for you. So that through surrender, you might find freedom from all of that junk and you might find blessing. 
All you have to do is say, yes, God, that's what I want. That's what I believe. And if you're making that decision, I want to encourage you to let us know. Email me. Use the communication card. We want to help you on your journey, help you figure out what it takes to grow as a man or woman of God. For the rest of us, Father, we've got um, stuff going on in our lives. And for many, it's pretty painful. Father, teach us how to lament, how to give it to you. How to trust you when it's dark, when we are in the valley of the shadows. Lead us to the wind. God, we know you are good. We know you are faithful. We know that you've got our back. We know that you will provide. Make the truth of who you are ever more real to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thank you for joining us in worship today. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. Thank you for your financial support of our ministries. God does great things in people's lives because of your faithfulness. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe, like, and share this service wherever you watch it. The message of Jesus is too good to keep to ourselves. He is the best answer to all of life's challenges. We'll see you next week. Go in the grace of God.